Hey, my name's Jack, host of the show. Before making this podcast, my job was looking at my clients' networks to try to find ways to make them more secure. In other words, I was on defense, locking things down, hardening systems, securing applications, and trying to turn off everything that didn't need to be on. And the defense team is sometimes known as the blue team. I'm on the blue team. But one day we paid an attacker to come into our office and see how well I did at securing the network. He was a professional penetration tester, and I made him sit right next to me. Attackers like this are said to be on the red team. And this whole red team, blue team thing is just a term borrowed from the military where they had drills with attackers and defenders. So here I am, the blue team, and there he was in the desk right next to me, the red team. The adversary, the enemy, a hacker. What do I do? Do I sabotage him so he can't do his job? Do I, do I block his IP from getting anywhere? It wasn't that I didn't trust him because he came from a very trusted company, but it was that I was extremely curious at how he works. So I wheeled my chair right over to his desk and I watched over his shoulder for the whole week. And I was amazed at what he can do. I learned so much that like forever made a permanent impact on the way I see how attackers work. And I want to give you that experience. So in this episode, we're going to get geeky. We're going to get really nerdy and just like crazy technical at times as we watch over the shoulder of a penetration tester to see exactly how they do their work and how they try to get the crown jewels of a company. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. Presented by Jack Resider. This is Darknet Diaries. Support for this show comes from Veronis. Guess how many files the average employee can access on their first day of work? 17 million and most of them they never use. Those files are what these ransomware gangs steal and hold hostage because companies will pay to get that back. That's why ransomware is such a threat. The blast radius is huge, 17 million files? There's so much valuable data that's easy to get and they can make money from. Do you wonder what your company's ransomware blast radius is? Veronis does a free cyber resilience assessment and tells you how many important files a compromised user could steal and whether anything would beep if they did, and a whole lot more. They actually do all the work, show you where the data is open to, if anyone is using it, and what you can do to lock it down before attackers get inside. They also can detect behavior that looks like ransomware and stop it automatically. You can even get a break on your cyber insurance. If you want to learn more, visit varonis.com dark. That's spelled V A R. O-N-I-S, veronis.com slash dark. The penetration tester we're going to watch over the shoulder of goes by the name Tinker. He has a background in the U.S. Marines and has been doing penetration testing for like a long time, years. And when you do penetration testing for that long, you end up knowing a lot about computers, like far, far, far more than the average person and even more than the average IT person. And Tinker really is top notch at knowing how computers work in general. So... I called him up. Hello? Tinker, you there? Hello? The cable just wasn't pushed in all the way. That's all right. <laughs> it's the nature of all, uh, uh, mo- most issues are cable related. <laughs> oh, okay. Sounds like we're going to be in for a ride here. All right. So let's start out with, uh, just tell us your name and what do you do? Sure. My name is Tinker Secor. I am a uh, penetration tester or red teamer, depending on the nature of the engagement. Um, But generally speaking, uh, I hack into computers and I break into buildings uh, in in order to test my client's security. He's a typical penetration tester. And it's amazing to me that this job even exists. And there are a lot of people who do this as a career. I mean, imagine if a brick and mortar type store tested their security like this too. You'd have like paid shoplifters trying to test how good the LP is. Uh, LP is loss prevention for those non-criminals out there. And you'd pay cat burglars to try to steal paintings from museums. And you'd have reformed street gangsters trying to quietly rob a casino. And maybe some of these jobs exist, but in the online world, it's actually very common. Like, I'm pretty sure that if you want to process credit cards at all, you need an audit done on your network, which usually requires a penetration tester to come act like a criminal to see if they can hack into your credit card machines. Anyway, 
Tinker's been doing this for a long time, and he's really successful at getting into networks. And today, we're going to follow along with him on his assignment. It was a, a large national client within the United States, um, but but it, it kind of stretched within a, a North America and a, a bit uh, in some other continents. Now, often what a penetration tester will do is try to find a way into the network from the internet, the outside basically posing as just like a rogue hacker online who's trying to find something open or a website that's like exposing data. And Tinker had already done some of that for this client and they were happy with the results and they wanted to take this to the next level. They said, look, we we want to assume that a threat actor has breached the perimeter. We want to assume that a threat actor has either broken into the facilities, uh, implanted a rogue device, um, or maybe an insider threat kind of thing. Generally speaking, this test will cover all of those. There's a term in information security called defense in depth. And this chief information security officer, their CISO, felt like their defense in depth was so good that they wanted to put it to the test. Basically, this concept means you create many layers of security, which makes it like redundant even. So I started inside. It's what we call an internal pen test. So the idea is, okay, uh, if you plan to fail and fail gracefully, you want to see, okay, what happens once somebody gets in? You know, a lot of people say it's game over, but there are so many different ways to, to breach. Now, again, I want to give a warning here that we're going to get nerdy and technical in this episode because this story he has paints a perfect picture of what a penetration tester does. And I want to get technical because I think it'll be a fun opportunity to see exactly how all this works. Oh, and there's also a few cuss words in this one, too. So this company wants Tinker to do a security assessment from the inside of the company. And to do that, they need to set him up with a temporary job in marketing. So they, they set me up uh, basically to do content. And so I went in uh, within the marketing department. And so uh, I assumed the name Jeremy and I was Jeremy from marketing. You get it, right? This Jeremy from marketing is actually a very good hacker. And his goal is to see how much he can hack into in his first week on the job in the marketing department. And the IT team and security team and even the marketing team have absolutely no idea that this new guy, Jeremy from marketing, is an extremely trained hacker who's highly motivated to just hack into the network and get everything. And this isn't a far-fetched scenario. Sometimes you have temps or interns or new hires that get turned into spies to work for another government to see what's in that network while they're working there. And can you really trust Jeremy from marketing? Yeah, suppose he did all the interviews, but still, I mean, he really just did walk right off the street and sit down in your office. So are you going to give him all the passwords to file servers and logins and to the company's Facebook account? Ideally, your hiring process should vet him, but it's really hard to know if that person is actually trustworthy. There was really only two people in the entire company who knew who I was, and, and, and that was a CISO and one of his assistants. The CISO is the chief information security officer, and he reports directly to the CEO. He basically got everything sorted out with HR to hire this Jeremy from marketing. And they said, look, I could bring in anything I wanted. You know, I could bring in uh, all my hacking gear if I wanted to, but, but I needed to make sure that I didn't get caught. Without being caught is the tricky part. If he had like a bunch of antennas sticking out of his desk or even extra laptops all around, it would surely look suspicious. All right. So he's all set for his new job. It's Monday morning and he's off to work. On the drive into the office, he starts to go over his methodology and plan of attack. Get in, do passive reconnaissance, active reconnaissance, vulnerability and misconfiguration, et cetera, enumeration, um, initial breach, lateral movement, pivot, uh, escalation of privileges, actions on target, uh, exfiltration, and persistence may be in there if, if, if you need to, right? That's kind of the standard approach. And so that's his plan of attack. So he drives into the office, parks the car. It's a typical looking office building, multiple floors. His office is just one of the floors. I showed up, you know, dressed in a, in a button up with a tie. Shows his badge to get in and asks where the marketing department is. And they introduce him to his new team. They said, look, here's your cubicle. Here's your team. The team was told that I was a contractor. Uh, this company used a, a decent amount of contractors. So my, my being there, my role was, was fairly normal. I think there, there might have been a, another person who had started a week earlier as an actual uh, content creator within marketing. He takes a look at the computer that was given to him. I came in as an employee, as a contractor, but it was the same thing. So they gave me a laptop that had a very standard, uh, their standard uh, workstation image, right? 
Um, and I could use that. It was, it was fairly locked down and they did that on purpose because uh, they wanted to say, hey, what's available to someone else? Or what happens if one of uh, their employees clicks on a fish, right? And they have that user level starting point. So they gave me that. That's another good point. When a fish or phishing email is successful, often the hacker will then have access to that person's computer who opened the phishing email. So if somebody in marketing did get fished, this is a great scenario to test whether or not they could get further into the network. I think it's a good idea to test this. The very first day uh, I came in with uh, just the laptop that they gave me and uh, maybe a, a, you know, a Cali image uh, burnt on a USB that I can maybe mount. And I had in my backpack my own hack box, you know, just a little Dell laptop uh, loaded with uh, Ubuntu as a base image with uh, some Kali VMs, et cetera. And, and that's kind of the rogue device. So I had, I had kind of a standard set of equipment uh, starting off. Not, not a lot was expected of me within, you know, the first uh, couple of weeks is what my team told me. But it was very much, you know, watch the security videos. I'm not supposed to click on a fish, that sort of thing, right? And there was a couple of things that they wanted me to start working on, uh, like, uh, you know, an internal SharePoint. Again, nothing major. The culture was, hey, we'll get you spun up over the next two weeks. And, and starting on uh, week three and four, you know, you'll start uh, shadowing people and getting into it. So this gave him a lot of time to himself to see what was in the network. And so the very, very first thing I did was plugged in their standard uh, laptop and just get a feel for it. Uh, I wanted to know, you know, what a uh, What's kind of the username schema? You know, is it is it first initial, last name? It doesn't match the email. It doesn't always match the email. One thing that companies do is give certain IT admins a second username, something like dash ADM at the end or dash admin. And a username like this gives you a clue that that person probably has extra access than others. So the very first thing I can do is run pull up command.exe on the workstation. I'm not using any, uh, I'm using their tools. I'm not using any malware and just type in netspace users forward slash domain. And it will dump out the entire list of all users within that domain. Um, I can do net groups domain admins and dump all the domain admins. I can do a net groups domain uh, controllers forward slash domain and dump out the, the host names of all the domain controllers, right? These commands spit out a ton of data, giving a list of all usernames, all admins, all domains, and then he's compiling this data to have it handy later in case he needs it. And these commands he's typing aren't even hacker tools. They're just standard Windows commands there to help IT administrators do their job. And this is all part of the reconnaissance phase. Me running these commands as a user against the domain controller, uh, that's how a lot of default Active Directory environments are, are set up. I, I did this uh, uh, raw so I could have it offline uh, at night. Active Directory is the mechanism that Windows computers authenticate to each other. And hackers love attacking this because it has so much data. It has information on all the users and all the passwords. And it has tons of stuff that a hacker can use to escalate their privileges or move on to other systems. It's a great place to start looking. And there's a lot of standard things to look for, which are like low-hanging fruit, known vulnerabilities, best practices that the IT team didn't follow. And one such bad practice is to set the admin password for Jeremy's laptop through a group policy, because this means that the hashed password would be in the group policy. And since Jeremy can see the policy, he could grab that hash and try to crack it. This place didn't have that. So I tried a lot of the very standard things. I went through and checked some shares, um, just using my own credentials, using guest credentials, so no credentials. Uh, and did a lot of that stuff, uh, just just basic enumeration. Got a feel for internal SharePoint, internal intranet, that sort of thing. Just what is available to the user. During this time, he's also learning what kind of tools this company may be running internally. And this is helpful because if you know, for instance, that they're running SAP, then you can start looking up vulnerabilities in SAP. And so he starts building a map of the network. The very first day, I'm just, you. the idea is just sit very still, find out what's going on in the environment, and kind of learn what's going around. Something a good penetration tester will do is try to be quiet as they can and not do anything to raise suspicion, just so that they aren't detected early and they know what normal looks like. So he was careful at what commands he was typing into the computers so that he wouldn't raise any sort of alarms. The workstation had a bit of antivirus and endpoint protection. Uh, it wasn't as robust as it could have been, but it, it was definitely there. And, and you know, endpoint protection is one of two things or both. It, it either prevents what it deems as malicious software, uh, but it can also do a lot of logging. Next, he took a look at what tasks and services were running on his laptop. You know, just doing control, delete, and looking at task manager. Notice a specific 
software solution that did a lot of heavy logging. This means that computer he was on was sending all kinds of messages to the log collector telling it what was going on on that system. So if he was doing bad things on that computer, chances are that was going to be logged and someone else could see that and catch him. And he didn't want to raise any suspicions, so he stopped pulling data from Active Directory, thinking someone might catch him doing it. Another thing he liked to do on his first day is be very visible around the office. He wanted people to know he belonged there and he was part of the marketing team. So he'd take walks around frequently, get some water, go to the bathroom, chat with people. And this also let him look around the office a little and scope the place out, see what normal office behavior looks like. And he comes back to his desk and sits down and starts to pull out his rogue laptop, which is full of all kinds of hacker tools. And after the break, we'll see what kind of fun he can have with this what kind of trouble he can get into. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger podcast. Here's a clip from one of his episodes. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show, where I speak with the infamous Firefest's Billy McFarland from inside federal prison, where he's serving six years for fraud and on the hook for $26 million in restitution. This call is from William McFarland. An inmate at a federal prison. Is this the new Billy that we're hearing, or are you the same Billy that tried to pull off the fire Festival? When I think about the mistakes that were made and what happened, there's no way I can just describe it other than what the f*** was I thinking. I was wrong, and I hope now that I can in some small way make a positive impact. Once you knew that the festival wasn't going to go as planned, why didn't you call it off? So a lot of people don't know, but the decision to cancel the festival was made when I was told that three people had died at the event. Thankfully, no one was actually physically hurt in any way. But up until the last second, I believed incorrectly we could pull it off, and obviously I was wrong. We had something called the Urgent Daily Payments Document. Essentially, it was a list of payments that we had to make that day, or else the festival couldn't proceed. In the couple of months leading up to the event, it went from a couple thousand dollars a day to a few million dollars a day, where I had to wake up at 9 in the morning, find $3 million by noon, and then make the payments by 4. You had a big vision, I mean, it was huge. And you got so close to something great that everyone wanted to be a part of, and people still want to be a part of it. I have to wonder if there's going to be a Firefest version two. I assume you wouldn't call it that, but are you thinking of doing something similar? If there's anything that makes you want to create and build and do, it's being locked in a cage for months or years. Are you good to come? For more with Billy McFarland, including lessons learned on the inside and his plans once he's served the time he agrees he rightly deserves, check out episode 422 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Support for this episode comes from Oracle for Startups. I think I have to buy a new phone this week. This one I have is running out of space and it's just too slow for my modern usage. But I wonder if startup companies have this same problem where they start out with some cool new technology to run their business but over time it starts to slow down and their underlying architecture just can't handle big customers, large spikes, or the growth that they hope to have. How does a startup find technology that can grow with them? Well, Oracle has this startup partnership. It's cleverly called Oracle for Startups. The idea is even though you're a startup, you can tap into the cloud computing power, expertise, and connections of a big dog like Oracle. You get free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services. Plus, with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you build this any way you want. Now you aren't frustrated and you've got the power to scale and you're free to go after your dream customers. Don't stay stuck. Go check out oracle.com slash go to slash darknet. Jeremy from Marketing pulls out a rogue laptop and boots it up. When I did plug in my 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 actual laptop, my hack laptop, the very first thing I did is run Wireshark. Wireshark captures all packets coming to that computer. It's sort of like sitting on the front porch of your house and watching all the traffic going up and down the street. But you really only get to see what's on your street, and not like the whole neighborhood. And in fact, you really only get to see what's coming in and out of your own driveway. But still, it gives you a good sense of what kind of traffic is going around. And so I spun up Wireshark and started trapping a lot of, uh, sniffing a lot of the packets. Primarily, he was looking for what sort of hardware is on the system, laptop-wise, right, or even server-wise. What's the host name schema? Because while Wireshark generally only picks up traffic to that computer, it also picks up broadcast traffic, too. And these are packets that are intended for everyone on that subnet. 
and computers make a lot of broadcast traffic. And by capturing these MAC addresses, it will also tell you what kind of systems are on the network. Because a MAC address contains information on what manufacturer made that device. So again, knowing this lets him blend in better. Now he's starting to know what kind of exploits he might be able to use. Again, the, the very first day, especially right at the beginning, all I'm really trying to do is just sit very, very still and and listen to what's going on around me, get a feel for the environment. This reminds me of the quote from the spiritual teacher, Ram Das, which goes like this, the quieter you become, the more you can hear. One thing struck me is that they didn't have a very good uh, NAC solution. NAC is network access control, and it's a technology that gives each individual computer network access. So with proper NAC, only computers that the company has authorized are allowed on the network, and everything else gets no access at all. It's to prevent this very specific type of attack where you plug in rogue devices. Um, you know, you should only plug in devices that, that you know are yours. Uh, the problem is um, having to manage all those assets, and especially when you come from kind of an open environment where bring your own device and that kind of thing can get into the internal network. Implementing a NAC solution is a simple concept, but it's very, very difficult and typically takes several months to, to roll out. So they did not have uh, network access control, so I could plug in my rogue device. Um, but as soon as, as I got done with the, the passive sniffing, you know, I want to know what MAC addresses are associated with, you know, with servers, with laptops and whatever else I could find. And there's sometimes even phones, right? Um, and what were the host names for each? Uh, I changed my host name to kind of match their schema, and, and I changed the first three octets of my uh, MAC address to uh, to match their hardware, uh, and then I randomized the, the, the last three, right? Um, so I did do that in order to blend in. He's like Rambo now, painting himself with mud to avoid being detected. Uh, the long and short is I tried a couple different things and, and ended up uh, uh, in a position where I was confident that I could start doing more active reconnaissance without being kind of found out. Day one is over. Jemmy from marketing quietly loads up his laptops and heads home for the day. He's feeling confident at this point. He's collected a lot of data and starts to, you know, get to feel for the environment and starting to think about what kind of attacks he can use. So the next day he comes in and fires up Responder. In my opinion, Responder is an amazing tool. It's like cheating almost for hackers. And here's how I think it works. Okay, so like if you have an office job and you use a computer, do you have shared drives on that computer? Like if you're on a Windows machine, you might have the M drive or the I drive or the Z drive. And this is like some shared network folder that other people in the office can access too. Okay, so suppose your Windows computer needs to connect to this shared network drive. There's a number of things it has to do. Usually the shared drive is like a host name. It's not always an IP address. So the first thing your computer needs to do to connect to that drive is to resolve the host name. And that's what DNS is for. Now, there's a DNS order of operation here. Your computer will first check the internal host file to see if it has a hard-coded IP address for that server. And if not, it'll then go to the DNS server to see if it knows what the IP address is. Now, normally the DNS server knows the IP, but sometimes it fails. It fails because maybe you're on the wrong network, you're not VPN'd in, the shared server might be offline. So if you ask the DNS servers, what's the IP address for this host name, and the DNS server doesn't know, then what does your computer do next? It asks everyone on the subnet, hey, does anyone here know what IP address is for this shared drive? And that's when Responder kicks in. Responder is a lying, cheating, sneaky, ugly looking guy who says, yeah, I know exactly what IP address is for that server. And your computer says, oh great, what is it? And Responder says, it's me, I'm that shared drive, even though it's not. And your computer says, oh, okay, great, let me in then. And then Responder says, okay, sure, no problem, but first, I wanna make sure you're allowed, so tell me your password. And your computer then gives Responder the password. Uh, you're not gonna send your, your raw password, you know, in the clear, you're gonna send uh, your authentication hash. In this sense, it's typically net NTLM, NTLM uh, V2 or V1, and that's a salted hash. Do you see what happened here? Responder is a hacker tool that just lies and tricks a computer on the local subnet into giving computers the hashed password to that computer. It's unbelievably good at this too, and it's almost impossible to detect since you have to have sensors on that local subnet to spot it. Generally speaking, I will run Responder twice a day for maybe 15 to 20 minutes and even intermittently at that. I run it right in the morning and right at, at noon when people are, are logging in through the computer, they're logging in the morning, they're logging in from lunch. 
uh, that's when a lot of that traffic comes that you can track. Generally speaking, I'll, you know, depending on how big the environment is, I'll pull down 10, 20 hashes quite easily. So he fires up Responder in the morning and waits for hashes to come in. I pull down maybe 5 to 15 hashes total. Nice. With this, if he can crack a few of these, he can then work his way into the network and get some more privileges from someone else. And so I pulled down those hashes. Again, they're, they're, they're net NTLMv2 hashes. He loads these up into his GPU password cracking rig, which is off-site at his own office. It was eight NVIDIA GTX 1080 Ti's mounted in a 4U uh, rack server. Whoa, what a monster. That's like an $8,000 computer. And basically what he'll do is take those hashes he picked up from Responder and load them up into this computer. And then he runs a tool called Hashcat to cycle through billions of passwords a second to try to find a matching password. A computer like that can try every word in the dictionary in like under a second. Then it will go and try adding numbers to the ends of words or special symbols like a dollar sign instead of an S. And it will keep trying passwords more random and more complex over time until it finds a match. This is brute force password cracking. The lowest I've ever gotten is like uh, a 20% crack rate, you know, one in five. Uh, well, somebody is, is statistically, I'm going to get that much. Usually on those immediate, uh, just kind of standard stuff, I'll get anywhere from 50 to 75% crack rate. In TLM, I think at that time we could, we could do something like 300 uh, billion guesses per second. And I want to say with, uh, with net NTLM v2, it was only, and I say only, it was only somewhere between, I don't know, 6 to 12 billion guesses per second, right? <laughs> so uh, not too many, right? Uh, I ran it against our standard dictionaries and our rule sets, and I didn't, I didn't crack any. His monster of a cracking station tried billions and billions of passwords and found absolutely no matches on any of the hashes. This was a big surprise. Like, this never happens. Usually when that happens, it means my tools are broken, you know, like an update broken or something. Uh, so I went and checked all my tools, put in uh, known hashes. You know, I, I have test hashes to, to make sure my tools work. Uh, and those crack just fine. Um, so I, I did, you know, troubleshooting on my own stuff. Uh, and, 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 and it was working. So that's when I kind of stopped and went back into the internet and, and looked up a security policy. The security policy is going to tell you the minimum length of what a password must be and how many special characters and digits that have to be in it. And sure enough, I, I believe they had a minimum of 12 character passwords. Uh, and at that point, it's starting to become passphrases. You know, I'm a big, big advocate of uh, passphrases. You know, password, you, you can crack fairly easily, but a passphrase, ideally four or five different words, uh, completely random. Um, that, that's much more robust than what we have today. Um, but I said, okay, all right, that's fine. Um, it's still upper, lower number and symbol, uh, three out of four, and it still changes every 90 days. Uh, so that means that people aren't going to create a really hard to figure out passphrase. They're, they're going to create something that they can remember and then iterate on it, right? Uh, and so I, I changed uh, a little bit of my, um, of my attack settings to, to account for minimum 12 character and basically just picked longer words in longer uh, numbers at the end. You know, I did four, uh, four digit numbers. So you usually get the last four, four digits of somebody's social security number, the current, uh, the current year, something along those lines. And I just picked longer words. I also did a full, I went onto the website uh, and uh, did a full word scrape from, from all their stuff, including a lot of stuff from the internal internet to, to get kind of the cultural kind of thing. So you get local sports teams, you get local uh, schools, you get local street addresses, uh, and any kind of mascots or what have you that they really identify with. Uh, you also get cultural phrases or, or what have you. Uh, and so I finally did that and I finally got, I wanna say a, a good like tiny handful. I finally got a couple uh, clear text passwords, but, but let me tell you, my, my equipment was sweating after that. Okay, now, Jeremy from marketing has a few other employees' passwords. And really, getting this was not that difficult. Running Responder is really simple to do, and he's using off-the-shelf parts to build a computer to crack these hashes. It sounds amazing, but if you know what you're doing, it's really not that hard. So now that he has a few usernames and passwords, he cracks a small smile because it feels like a big win, but he doesn't want to let the other people in marketing know that he's doing something. And he begins to try to figure out what he can do with these accounts. Uh, so there, there's a couple things that you can do, right? Um, you can immediately try to log into a, a workstation. So I know their laptop is on this subnet. And 
Uh, I do a very targeted spray with their username and their password against all of it. What targeted spray means is that he's subtly trying to remotely log in to a computer using these passwords he found. But none of the logins worked. The, the error message uh, amounted to good password, but not authorized to log in, not within the group that can do remote logins, which is which is fascinating, right? <laughs> I mean, that that is absolutely something that you can do. Um, but but I very rarely see, I mean, that that... that by default, that's not set up, which, which to me, that, that was kind of my first shock to the system. I, you know, aside from the, the fact I'm like, here I am, uh, they require 12 character passphrases and they don't allow common users to do remote login to their own uh, boxes. Uh, I'm starting to go, okay, so something's going on here where, you know, what, what, what sort of, uh, what sort of place have they put me in, you know? So, okay, these users cannot log in remotely, but they have to be able to log in normally, like when they're at a workstation. So he logs out of his company-issued workstation, and he tries to log in with one of these usernames. Now, earlier, he was pulling stuff from Active Directory, but because there was so much logging enabled in his laptop, he had to stop because he didn't want to bring attention to himself. But now that he has someone else's password, and he can act like someone else for a little while, he can use that to gather more information with. So what I did with these credentials, because I didn't want to use my own credentials. I didn't want anything to be tied back to, to me as a person, right? So I used these stolen credentials. And at that point, I logged into uh, a syswell on the uh, domain controller, pulled uh, all of Active Directory. You can mount syswell, right? And and uh, get all the, the group policy preference. You get scripts in there that, that the domain uh, admins will run and other IT will run. You can sometimes pull hard-coded credentials out of those. Uh, I, I pulled all the users, and, uh, usernames and uh, host names and, and a myriad of other things. And so with the domain controller, I pulled down all the information of all the users, including the groups, and had a lot of recon at that point. Uh, so, so rather successful uh, at that first go. Um, and that's just used. So even though I wasn't able to log into the, the user laptop, I was able to at least interact with the domain controller in the way that Windows you know, allows for. Uh, but still at this point, I don't have much, right? Right. So now we're nearing the end of the second day, and Jeremy from marketing is really struggling to get anywhere in this network. Sure, he has a few passwords, but he's very limited at what he can do with them. Usually by now, he's deep in the network with like starting to get access to Active Directory server or something, something like bigger than this. But he's got like nothing so far. So at this point, I'm like, okay, well, I still have good user credentials, um, you know, what am I going to do? So the, the first thing I try to do is just log into their email, right? Using either OWA or Office 365 or, or whatever single sign-on that they're using. And I was able to get in. They did not have multi-factor authentication set up on email. Uh, as luck would have it, though, one of the very first emails that I read, just rifling through someone else's email, was an email saying, hey, be advised, uh, next week we're implementing multi-factor authentication in email, so be prepared to set that up. And I'm like, woo! I got in uh, I got in early enough to where I didn't have to do that. Now he starts looking through the emails to see if he can find anything of importance. Maybe IT emailed them passwords at one point or something else that might be helpful. And he found a password. But it was for like a third-party tool, like a tax assessor's website or something. But really, that's it. He even looked for like internal notes that Outlook sometimes stores for users to see if they just wrote their passwords down on that or something. But there was nothing there. No help. So we tried a new approach. Uh, get into their, their single sign-on, you know, their intranet, right? What, what I see companies doing today is they create a single portal for employees to log into, which then provides them access to all the tools. And this is called single sign-on because you log in once and it gets you access to many things. Single sign-on that's not set up properly or securely is a hacker's dream. Uh, you know, all of the things are in one tidy little group and, and you have full access to it. And I've taken down entire organizations where single sign-on was there, but, uh, you know, like, like a hub of applications, if you will. One of them gave me just a, a whole lot of access. This place, though, I got in from the outside, which I tried to do because I didn't want it to originate from the inside. From the outside, it required multi-factor authentication just to log in, right? When, when he says from the outside, he means from outside the company. Like the single sign-on portal can be accessed from anywhere in the world. It's right on the internet. But Ah, multi-factor authentication makes it much harder to log in. This is where you need both a, a password and like a six-digit token code generated on your phone or something to get in. So he tried to get into the portal from his laptop on the inside of the company, and it didn't require a multi-factor authentication. Yeah, now he's in. Now he looks to see what's there. A 
bunch of different apps, payroll stuff, client databases, control panels. Okay, he's feeling like he's getting somewhere now. And I clicked on one of the apps and each individual app required its own separate multi-factor authentication uh, login. I was like, what? What kind of lockdown prison is this place, right? You know, it's the <laughs> like, opposite it's... of single sign-on. Well, well, exactly. And so, so uh, uh, what they've done is, is they, you know, they set it up properly. They, they had you know one place for everybody to go to. But man, you better have your your soft token or, or something set up. At this point, you know, I'm I'm getting kind of getting kind of heated. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, uh, uh, Tinker, you're, you're, you know, you're losing time. <laughs> you better hack into something. I, I had gotten a couple of things. I hacked into email, but it didn't give me much. Right. So I, I already have, you know, some findings. I, I've got, I've got a report here that's kind of building of things they can tighten up, but, but nothing significant, you know, and, and, and pen testers, you know, your, your, your dopamine, your adrenaline is going off of those, those really big hacks. Right. And so, I still, at this point, have not gained access to another workstation beyond my own. He takes a little break, gets a drink of water, resets himself, and sits back down. I, I need a lat move. I need to start getting onto some servers. I need I need to start going and and at least targeting some some uh, some some crown jewels here. But, but I've got nothing. And uh, one thing caught my eye though in the single sign on uh, was Citrix. And I I as an attacker I love Citrix because. What Citrix is, is uh, it, it amounts to a uh, remote desktop through the browser, right? Um, and so generally, if, if there's something from Citrix, generally it's a server of some sort that's hosting internal applications or, you know, something else it's serving up. Um, but but I, I see Citrix and I usually go for it because I can really get a, a good, good thing there, maybe dump some memory. Um, and I click on, on Citrix. And it asks me for a multi-factor authentication. And it says it's going to send it via SMS to this user's uh, cell phone. Um, but it only gives the last four digits of the cell phone. Well, yes, it's possible to hijack a cell phone, do like SIM swapping or something. That's technically illegal. And he's not allowed to do illegal things as a penetration tester. And all he knows about this person is their name, their username, their password, and the last four digits of their cell phone. But I have their email. So I type in the last four of their phone number into the search bar within this person's email. And and I pull up one of their um, signatures that has their full phone number. Okay, I have their full phone number. I have their name. I have who they are. I have everything that that amounts to them within this environment. Let's bypass multi-factor authentication. Okay, so here's what he's got to do. He's got to click on that login to Citrix, which will then send a text message to the phone of that user. And he's got to somehow get that text message, enter it into this website all within 60 seconds before the code expires. This isn't going to be easy. I have this this phone number. I called person. I got to make sure, you know, I got to make sure none of the people around me are hearing me at this point, right? <laughs> so, but I, I, I put on my, my headset, I put on my own phone. And I call this person, they answer, and Jane from accounting, I, I lie to them. And, and I say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm somebody else from, uh, from IT, and uh, uh, we're going to migrate your, your Citrix instance within single sign-on. This person has no idea what I'm talking about. They're not IT. And so they're like, all they hear is computer gobbledygook. They're like, yeah, that sounds fine. Why are you calling me? And I'm like, well, I, I'm going to send you... Um, I'm going to send you a, a pin number that I need you to read back to me um, that, that authenticates that it is your account. But I, I need you to know, as your IT, I will never ask for your password. And again, this kind of gives them a sense of security. I, I obviously already had their password, but it gives them a sense of security and says, okay, well, they're not going to ask for my password. That's what matters. So I'll read off this pin. I said, okay, well, I'm about to send you a text message. You'll receive it from my server, Citrix, right? And they go, okay. Uh, and I, I go ahead and click send uh, MFA. And they go, okay, well, I got the text. You just need me to read this to you? I go, yep, just read it to me. She, she read it to me. I typed it in within, you know, the minute because <laughs> you only have about 60 seconds. And it, it logged me in. And I go, okay, well, uh, just letting you know. And this is right before lunch. Go ahead and take a, a long lunch or, or don't interact with, with Citrix for, you know, at least two hours while we do the migration. And she said, okay, great. Sounds good. I go, okay, sounds good. Bye. I'm like, okay, great, finally, I've got into Citrix. And so I log into Citrix, and there's no applications. There's no computers. It's an empty Citrix instance. I, I've, I've, hacked, uh, I've hacked my way into a 
broom closet. You know, there's there's nothing here. I just bypassed multi-factor authentication through a solid social engineering uh, exploit after cracking this person's password, which was hard to crack to begin with. You know, after this day and a half has arrived up to this very point, and I've got nothing. Absolutely nothing. At this point, if you were to look over at Jeremy from marketing, you'd see him sweating and shaking. I found that that generally when I'm doing a, a sock in, a social engineering attack, or when I'm doing a physical break-in or, or what have you, when I'm doing it, I'm calm, cool, and collected. I'm, I'm usually sweating like you wouldn't believe, but but my demeanor is 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 on point. Afterwards, though, man, that that adrenaline rush it comes crashing down, and I will, I shit you not. I will, I will physically shake. You know, uh, I'm probably one of the most uh, loud, outspoken introverts you've ever met. I, I am confident in front of people. I used to be a sergeant in the Marine Corps, and so you know, when you when you've got a platoon full of trained killers, and, and you're trying to get them to do what you want to do, you, you have to develop confidence, um, or at least a projection of confidence. You know, lie through your teeth, right? Uh, so I, I, I will have confidence. I, I am socially adept, but but it still drains me, especially when I'm doing something like this that that I have to put on a a heavy mask. And so, yeah, I get out of that. I'm, I'm sweating. I, you know, it took me probably about a full hour to prepare for it as I did an in-depth research on this person. And I've got nothing. Usually he's a lot further along at this point on his penetration test. And it's just making him really worried that he's not going to find anything. So I go, screw it. I, I, I'm going to go all out at this point. And as people start leaving to head home, I say, hey, I'm going to stay back and and finish uh, trying to knock out some more of these, you know, onboarding videos. And, and, and nobody seemed to mind. So he sits and waits, sitting in his cubicle, watching everyone leave the office. And he keeps peering over it, seeing if anyone has left. And he sits back down and waits some more. I waited until the cleaning crew came. I waited until the cleaning crew left. I think I was the only one on that floor. I believe there was maybe a couple other people working on different uh, floors, but I was the only one on that floor. He starts walking by every cubicle, looking to see if any computers were logged in while that person went home. And no computers were left logged in. But he does see some people did leave their computers behind. I said, you know what, I'm just going to steal laptops. I don't even care at this point, you know. And I go start plugging in to to my colleagues' laptops that that, that left their their laptop there. Uh, But two things kind of jumped out. The biggest thing was they had encrypted hard drives. So even if I mount and boot from USB, which I was able to do, I couldn't mount their their hard drive. It was encrypted, and so I couldn't pull off any kind of local admin hash. Ah, again, blocked. All these little safeguards in place are really giving him a hard time to get anywhere. Even when nobody is in the office, he still can't access people's laptops. He's tired, he's hungry, he's nervous, and his frustration is just building. So I said, screw it, I'm going to go after the IT shack. Okay, so the IT shack is the room where the IT help desk keeps all the computers. Like, they probably have 10, 20, 100 computers in there. If he can get into this room, he'd have access to a lot of workstations. And he thinks maybe if he gets his hands on these, he can get somewhere. Going up to the IT shack, um, I, 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 during the, the last couple, you know, the previous couple days, whenever I get up and walk, I'm, I, I try to make people see me so that they know I'm supposed to be there. Uh, and I'm doing kind of reconnaissance on where everything was. And so by that time, you know, I knew where the break uh, room was. I knew where uh, the guards hung out. I knew where, uh, where the IT shack was. And, First thing I had done previously was check where all the cameras were, and there was not a camera looking at the door uh, to the IT shack. Um, so I knew that visually I was fine. But uh, when I went to the IT shack, I wanted to make sure there was no one around the corner. And I wanted to sit there and pause. So he stands and waits right around the corner from the IT shack door, and he tries to listen to see if anyone is around. And, and, and in order to kind of really cast your hearing out to hear as best you can, uh, there's a couple things that you can do. One is slow down your own breathing uh, to slow your heart down. Because if if your heart's beating, that'll actually fill your ears with like a pump, pump, pump of blood. So you need to calm yourself completely down. I tilt my head down and I look down because I want to focus. I'm not necessarily closing my eyes, but I want to focus on my hearing. So I'm making sure that I'm not looking at anything in particular. And then I open my mouth slightly. And, and the reason why you do that is you have your jaw muscles, when you when you have a clenched or closed mouth, your jaw muscles will actually come right up near your ear canal uh, and kind of close it off slightly. And so you can, you can try this even at home. Get to a place where you have your, your jaw closed and just listen for a while. Uh, you can do this at night. 
and then open your, your mouth comfortably wide open. You don't want to strain yourself, but comfortably open to move your jaw uh, bone away from your ear canal. And you'll find that that opens your ear canal wide open uh, and you can hear a lot more. And I say get context. You can not only can you hear further, but you can hear more things. Does that make God, sense? I, yeah, I love pen testers. It's like you're Felix the cat. You have a bag full of tricks <laughs> and you never know when you need it, but you just have them ready to go. That, that's the thing. We, we try to be jacks of all trades and you try to study as many things as possible. I pulled that trick out of uh, being in the Marine Corps uh, when, when you have to do night missions. L- little things that you pick up along the way uh, that just, I tell you, they, they, they come into play. So after standing around the corner from the IT shack door for a good 30 seconds listening for anything, it seems like the coast is clear. Time to move in. So he gets his lock picks ready and is prepared to move to the door and start picking the lock. He turns the corner and to his surprise, a door stopper is stuck in the door, which is just barely keeping the door open slightly. <laughs> All right, lucky break. He won't have to pick the lock now. But this gave him a totally different sensation. Was someone in there? If so, is he going to have to wait even longer for them to leave? He tries to look through the crack, but he can't see much. Screw it. He's going in. I walk in real quick. And I see stacks and stacks of laptops. Nobody was in the room. Someone accidentally left the door open all night. Um, come to find out later on, it was it was literally uh, a person had forgotten their keys. And so they, they left it propped open to go to the restroom and never came back to shut the door. So he's standing in the IT shack in front of like 75 laptops or more. So I've got an option here. I can stay in the shack and do all my things there. Or I can take what I need and move over to my desk or, or you know, conference room, whatever, uh, and do it elsewhere. And, and there's a give and take of both. If I stay in the shack, no one will see me hacking into these computers. And so if I stay in there, I protect myself against the bulk majority of people that will be walking through in the middle of the night if they came in, you know, after hours for whatever reason. But if I stay in there and an IT person comes in, which plenty of IT people work overnight or have to come in for a call or something, uh, I'm caught red-handed. I've got I've got no excuse for being in there, and so I, I make a call uh, that I'm going to start hauling as many of these computers to my desk, and then from my desk, kind of bring them up. and And if someone comes by, you know, hopefully I've got them tucked away or whatever. I can pretend that's mine or whatever, right? I, I can hear them come and kind of hide it and go back to work. And so I, I start taking armloads, like full handfuls of these laptops, to my cubicle area uh, and stacking them underneath my desk. And I, I ended up grabbing, I made, I don't know, three or four trips and, and ended up grabbing about 30 laptops before I said, you know what, this is probably enough. <laughs> um, I went back to my uh, to my cubicle at this point, shut the door and just started trying to, uh, to boot from USB and mount as many hard drives as possible. He starts going through each laptop one by one, spending hours on that, trying to find if any of them have an unencrypted drive and he finds two in the whole stack that were either old images or didn't get encrypted. And now that he has an unencrypted hard drive, he dumps the local administrator hash from that laptop. And once he has this hash, he starts running it through that monster password cracking station he has, and he tries to crack the admin password. And, and I crack it rather quickly. It was actually the company name and the year, the capital uh, uh, first letter on the company name, a, a very weak password. I was like, you know, are you kidding me? Everything else I've found has been amazing and this is it. Just to test the password, he tries logging into his own workstation with it, and the admin password worked. Bingo. This means the admin password that he just found is likely the admin password for all the user's laptops in the office, which should allow him to log into any user's laptop. Finally, he's making progress. This is a big break. So he starts putting the laptops back in the IT shack. And I took pictures of of where they were so that, I mean, they were out of order by this point, but I I put them, I mean, stacked about as precisely as I possibly could. Anything I touch, I put it back as closely as as I found it so that it doesn't look like it's been disturbed. And I'm like, okay, well, great. I I got a lucky break. I can now use this to spray everything, right? So at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm beat and I go home and I sleep. Feeling rested and happy that he has an admin hash and a password, he comes back into the office, finally ready to dig deep into the network. Yeah, come back in and, and okay, I've, I've got the best thing that I have. I've got a local admin hash. First thing I try to do is, is pass the hash, uh, which just uses the actual hash as, as a password. Which is a great technique. Often when you're logging into another computer, your computer hashes your password and gives it to that other computer to log into. So if you have the hash, just give him that and that could authenticate you. But in this case, it wasn't working. There was some kind of error. But last night he cracked the local admin password 
And IT administrators will often reuse this password. So this local admin password might actually work on every laptop in the whole company. So he tries to remotely log in to another computer using this local admin and password. But it wasn't working. The local admin hash was not letting me log into. Again, it comes up as valid uh, credential, but you're not allowed to log in, right? And I'm like, this is asinine. <laughs> like, like even the local admin needs to be able to log in. It's not letting me. So he logs into his own laptop again as local admin to try to figure out what's going on. When I log in with the local admin password, they don't have access to the full computer. The local admin, the local administrator does not have full access to the rest of the hard drive. It doesn't have access to the user level, which this doesn't make sense because that's how it's set up. That, that admin has access to everything, right? And, and, and again, I'm punching myself in the face, you know. Uh, and it turned out that they were using a third-party non-Microsoft tool to do access control and user control, etc. This is quite impressive. While the password was probably used for everyone's laptop, the admin user doesn't have that many rights at all. I've never heard of this myself. But yet this is another safeguard that this company has put in place in case this password got leaked, which was really hard to find to begin with, this would stop them even further. And now I'm angry. <laughs> you know, um, I, you know I, I can at this point, I can pop a shell from my computer, but uh, to, to, to my road computer, right? With this, with this pass, I can log anywhere and get a shell if I have physical access to somewhere, but it doesn't give me any, any rights. I don't, I don't have anything, I'm, you know, I've got this tiny little niche. I would be angry too. So many of his exploits and techniques should have given him access to the whole company by now. But this company was foiling his every single move and all his techniques. Now he's tired of trying to fly under the radar. He's ready to try and exploit on another computer that might make a little noise. And then from there, if he can get into a computer, you can see if there's anything good on that and move around to another computer. So he scans his own computer to see if it has a vulnerability that he can exploit. I tried a variety of them, but uh, the one that worked was uh, unquoted service path, which uh, the way the way Windows works is if say you want to run a program at startup. And so the, it's, it's designed to run this program at startup. But one of the folders that you run this program in has spaces in it, right? Um, if you don't put quotes around uh, that, those, those, uh, that full path, um, what Windows will do is attempt to run up to the space as if that's that, uh, that word. So say like it was, um, it was uh, something that said like Citrix space server. And that, that's a BS one. It would try to run Citrix as an executable first before it tried to run Citrix server as, as a directory. So if you go in there, if you have read, write, and you can create a program, a malicious program that's named Citrix as opposed to Citrix space server, it will run your program as in this sense system because the system was calling it. And I found a directory that let me do this. It wasn't Citrix Space Server, but uh, I'm like, okay, great. And uh, but I ran a check to see if I had read write, and it said I didn't. And at this point, I'm like, well, fuck it, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm like, this is horrible. Without the ability to write to the remote computer, he's unable to exploit that thing. So because it said he didn't have the ability to write, he just gave up at this point. Totally out of ideas. He put his elbows on his desk, and he put his head in his hands, completely dumbfounded. He's now on day three, and still has not gained access to any computer outside his own, and a couple of powered-off ones in the IT shack. His report and findings so far look dismal. This has been the hardest assignment he's ever had. Now, day three is over, and he heads home. Morning comes, it's now Thursday, he's getting ready to go into the office. And I, I called up a, an associate of mine, and I told him, here's everything I did, uh, but I, I ran the check to see if I had privs, and it said I did not have a uh, writability. He goes, well, did you try it anyways? And I'm like, oh, God damn it. No, I didn't. I, I just assumed. And uh, I went ahead and tried to write to it, and I could. Even though Windows came back and told me I couldn't, I was allowed to write. This kind of tells you, don't, don't listen to the output of the tools that, that you're trying to hack into. Turned out, again, this third-party uh, uh, software that, that ran all the access control, uh, the third-party allowed them to write, even though the native Windows didn't, and the third-party uh, superseded native Windows. At this point, I now have a meaningful way to escalate privileges to system level. And I tried out, I went with my colleague, uh, I, uh, he wrote a stager and, and I wrote the malware for it. Um, so he wrote a, an executable that would then call my PowerShell 
uh, a reverse shell. And I think it was just a tweaked version of Veil or, 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 or some sort of PowerShell uh, remote shell. Uh, so we tested it on my own workstation, unplugged from the domain. At this point, I'm getting kind of uh, uh, gutsy here, and it works. Okay, so for this exploit, here's what needs to happen. First, he has to put the exploit on a USB drive and then physically take it to another computer. Like, he would do this while a person wasn't at their desk. Log out of their user, log in as the local admin, drop two sets of malware. Drop it in, as in copy it from the USB to the computer, and then log out as admin. Then when the user comes back and logs in, his malware should give him remote access to that computer. So even though I found this way to do it, uh, it's still under like, you know, a person has to break in by this point to have physical control. And I'm like, you know what, screw it. We're, we're going to we're, we're, we're gonna do this. He thinks over this plan. This is a risky move, but if done right, could get him access to that person's computer. So whose laptop would be worth getting into? Maybe the CEO's. Hmm, yeah, but they weren't at this office. Who else? The IT team. Perfect. I'm going to go straight for IT. I'm going to hit IT and I'm going to take them down. I'm going to get system level remote access. With this remote access, you'd be able to do everything, including reading the CEO's emails. So the plan was to wait until lunch when he could go over to the IT team's computers and put this malware on it. So he waits and waits, peering over his cubicle from time to time. So he watches a few more of those onboarding videos for marketing and waits until lunch. The marketing team asked him to go to lunch, and he's like, no, 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 I'm fine. But they kept insisting, and he's like, no, really, I want to stay. So his team just leaves him behind, and he thinks, okay, now's a good time. I set up a listener on my rogue machine, and I go start walking. I've got a little uh, thumb drive with my malware on it. Um, and and their, their antivirus didn't detect it because we, we you know, kept it very low level. And I go over to the IT area, and I shit you not, the bulk majority of IT are sitting there eating lunch at their desk. And I'm like, you're, hey, that's not healthy. <laughs> that's not good work. Like, you need to get away from your computer. Uh, uh, you need to stand up. You need to walk. But but are you kidding me? These, these overworked, and this is not this is not saying this is a valid defense technique. Like, like seriously, one person can be there if they really need to. Uh, but but people need to get up and move away from their computers, even IT. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm frustrated. I start, I start walking and pacing around. At this point, I'm getting kind of heated. I'm losing my cool. I go around a corner. I finally find an area that doesn't have anybody. And sure enough, it's finance. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take down finance. And I go up there. As I'm up there, uh, I see one lady sitting down next to one of these uh, cubicles. And I, 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 I'm just going to go for it. I tell her, I go, look, I'm IT. I'm about to do some updates. And she goes, okay, sounds great. And I go ahead and do it. I pop it up in about 30 seconds. It takes me to log out, log back in. Uh, drop the malware into the correct uh, uh, folder, log out again, and then leave. He goes back to his desk and waits. Now what he's waiting for is that lady from finance to finish her lunch and to log back into her computer. So he pulls Metasploit up and waits and watches. Metasploit is like a hacker's tool bag. It contains hundreds of exploits and tools to hack into stuff. And he's got this hack all set up. So he's staring at his screen, and it says the listener is running and waiting for remote activity or something like that. And if everything is set up right, when she comes back and logs into her computer, he'll then have remote access to that lady's computer in finance. And the screen will say, Interpreter Session 1 open. So he waits for activity. Nothing. Nothing. He peeks over the cubicle wall sometimes to see if he can see her. He can't see anything. He waits longer and longer. And so he just keeps waiting. Come on, lady. The wait is killing him. It's now been 45 minutes at this point, and he's starting to think, it didn't work. She had to be back by now, and for some reason, whatever reason, the malware just didn't work. I'm about to give up. I see interpreter session one open, right? Uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. And then I see interpreter session two, session three, session... It popped eight shells. It tried to call this thing like eight different times. And I'm like, yes, I'm in, all right. I start rifling through this person's computer. I, I, I get persistence. Um, I actually get a couple passwords for finance, uh, you know, some small wins. And right as I'm about to start dumping memory, I lose my connection. You know, session closed. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I have fucking, I, I've, I've been without sleep. I've, I've gone too far. Uh, I've, what the hell happened to my shell? And I get up and I, I make a beeline right to that lady's uh uh, laptop, because I'm going to go pop another shell, you know, I'm like, get out of my way. 
And as I go around this corner, this, 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 this you know, precious little old lady reminds me of my grandmother. She's looking up at this this IT guy, and she's like, "No, I don't understand. Uh, um, they told me uh, uh, you guys were updating my computer." And right as I come around, he did. She turns and kind of glances at me and goes, "Him? It was him!" And I'm like, "Oh fuck!" You know, and, and I, I let out this this high pitched seventh grade girl scream, you know. Uh, and I turn around, and right as I turn around, there's two more IT guys right there. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and they're looking right at me like, who the fuck are you, and why are you calling yourself IT? They sat me down, and they said, you know, who are you? What are you doing with these computers kind of thing? When a penetration tester gets caught like this, they have to think, should I try to escape this situation, or should I just tell them I'm here working for the CISO? And in this case, he decided to say, I'm working for the CISO. At this point, I'm at the end of my rope. I, I've, I've done a very thorough test, even more than, than kind of what I've, I've gone into here um, uh, over, over uh, a, good, uh, a good week. I've stayed late and I've done everything I can think of and, and, and even learned some new tricks along the way. And, and while I was able to find several different things, you know, uh, an easy password uh, on local I mean, even a shared password, even though they use the other ones, uh, some clear text credentials here and there, uh, you know, a lady gave me her pen over the phone. A lot of these things, you know, they could tighten up long and short, you know, they, they stopped me and, and, and we brought in the CISO. He said, Hey, good job. Uh, here's the situation. He's okay. And, and we, we, we went into an initial debrief, both of what I had done and, and, and how they had found me. And, and, and I asked them, I go, look, I, I ran the safest, you know, freaking shell that I could run. I even tested against your uh, antivirus and, and your antivirus didn't catch it. And I was only there for 30 minutes, you know, like, like how did you find me? And they said, um, they said you were running PowerShell from a finance computer and finance doesn't run PowerShell. The only people that run PowerShell are, are IT and maybe some of our devs, you know, and DevSecOps or DevOps rather. PowerShell is kind of like a super command line tool in Windows. And yeah, only technical people ever use it or need it. The finance department would never run it. So this sort of behavior is like anomaly detection. And that lady in finance has never, in all the years she's ever worked there, ran PowerShell. But this exploit did. And since it was so out of the ordinary, it's how he got caught. Um, but but yeah, th- it was it was one of the toughest places. And and uh, I like telling that story when, when Blue Team kicked uh, Red Team's ass because you know, it showed what worked. Uh, and, and like I said, I still found a lot of different things that they could tighten up and, and they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but, but they had such robust security that they were able to not only detect me, but, 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 you know, act on it. it it's, it's not enough to detect an attack. You have to, you have to do proper response and containment. And, and I tell you what, they had all three. I imagine the IT team was proud of what they did to stop him, but they remained focused and serious as Tinker went over the report. They were taking ready notes. They 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 didn't gloat. Uh, they didn't rub it in, uh, and they also didn't take offense of the things that I found. Uh, they were very professional, and they said they appreciated it and uh, looked forward to my full report. I mean, it, it was it was uh, the epitome of professionalism. I like this story because not only do we get to see what a penetration tester does, but we also get to see what steps a company can take to make it really hard for hackers to get in. Because the harder it is, the more resource a hacker has to have. They have to have more time or more processing power or more people or more exploits or something. And the harder you make it for them, the more motivated they have to be to get through it. And they'll probably just give up and move on to something else if it's too hard. And just to recap what worked here for this company, they had multiple layers of security, defense and depth. They had a minimum of 12 character password policy, which made passwords hard to crack. They had two-factor authentication almost everywhere. They limited access to each user, which made it hard to do any remote logins. The local admin had very limited access, and the logging that was on everyone's computer allowed them to detect and find this hacker within minutes of him doing an exploit. All this added up creates a nightmare scenario for Tinker, and will probably be enough to create a nightmare scenario for any other hacker. Uh, the CISO was very, it was just professionalism from the top down. You could tell that this was a culture of continual self-introspection, right, and, and self-awareness as it related to their environment. Uh, and continual approval. And he, you know, he went in with the idea that, you know, at, at a certain point, you, you can't have a perfectly secure system, uh, uh, or no one's going to be able to use it, right? If someone can use it, you can, an attacker can emulate that user in some form or fashion. And so he's like, you know, we're, we're getting to the point where we have risk acceptance. You know, if you have to break into my place, and physically access a computer and do all this kind of stuff, um, 
at that point, the only people I'm really worried about are really high-end criminal groups and the NSA and Mossad. And if it takes the NSA and Mossad to hack into my place, fine. We'll accept that, you know, kind of thing. Thank you so much for sharing this story with us. Cheers, cheers. And uh, thank you for having me here to uh, to tell that story. A quick shout out to uh, the Dallas Hackers Association. Um, never met a, a more vile bunch of criminals, thieves, con artists, and hackers in my life, but uh, uh, there's some good folks. You've been listening to Darknet Diaries. Thank you to Tinker for telling us this amazing story and teaching us about pen testing. You should follow him on Twitter because he tells a lot more stories like this. His name there is TinkerSec. Also, thanks to Proximity Sound for doing that voice intro. That was really cool. Darknet Diaries is going to do a bit of a rebrand in the next few weeks with a new logo, webpage, shirt, stickers. I'm super excited to roll it out, so look for that soon. The show is made by me, the uh, president of D-Corp, Jack Recider. The intro music is by Breakmaster Cylinder, who you could always find hanging out at the Red Wheelbarrow Barbecue.